We're finishing up the Barefoot Blues Hour with a couple from the new Jess Klein record. It's called Learning Faith. We heard Dear God, and right there, the title track. Learning Faith, you're going to stay tuned for healthy options. They're coming up live. They're going to go wild. Good luck with that. Sounds like a healthy uh, option, but, you know, good luck going totally wild. Uh, stay tuned, see what they mean. Uh, back to the music at 11 with uh, On the Wing. Stay tuned for the whole WERU day. Support for WERU comes from the Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center, providing comprehensive reproductive and sexual health services for all women of all ages and all stages since 1984. Insurance, main care, dirigo, and self-pay accepted. MabelWadsworth.org. It's 106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas. Half a pack of cigarettes, it's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. Feel like escaping every once in a while? Join me, Fritz Homans, every Wednesday afternoon from 2 to 4 at the Blues Station. We'll shuffle out of town on track 145 and explore the well-known and not-so-well-known blues artists from coast to coast. Good blues is more than just playing notes, and we'll explore those artists who understand that concept 
and who play with their soul and their passion. You can count on a good escape on Wednesday afternoons. Lots of good insight into the artists who are bringing us the best of the blues and their music. All aboard for the Blues Station. That's every Wednesday from 2 to 4, right here on Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, and all over the world, online at WERU.org. Support for WERU comes from Penelope Shar, MD, integrative medicine practice in Bangor, offering detoxification, intravenous vitamins, bioidentical hormone therapies, and more. On the web at optionsinhealing.com or 217-8878. And the time's just about 10 o'clock. Stay tuned for Healthy Options with your host, Cynthia Swan. Welcome to Healthy Options. I'm your host, Cynthia Swan, and today we are going wild with my guest and co-author of the book, Go Wild. Free your body and mind from the afflictions of civilization. My guest, Richard Manning, is an award-winning journalist. He is the author of nine books, including Against the Grain and One Round River. His work has appeared in the Best American Science and Nature Writing 2010, Harper's, The New York Times, The Los Angeles Times, as well as several other publications. He lives in Helena, Montana. Welcome, Richard. Well, thank you, Cynthia. Well, let's dive right into this. Go wild. What does that mean, and why should we go wild? Well... It, it, if you think about the distinction between wolves and dogs, that's a good way to begin. Because dogs are really wolves. I mean, they're, they're the same guy, same genetic makeup and so forth. And the difference is domestication. At some point along the line, they got domesticated and altered as a result of it. The argument we're making go wild is essentially the same thing happened to humans. That we would evolved to live in a series of natural conditions like wild animals. We were in contact with our environment, and those conditions made us who we are. We haven't really changed very much from that at all. We've changed far less than dogs have changed from wolves. And so the argument is really that be healthy, we have to respect those conditions and go wild and behave like wild animals once again in some way. So, um, because so it, I, I read in your book, I found this interesting. You, you talk about this theme throughout the book too, how the modern lifestyles actually disconnect us from the natural world and from nature. Yeah, in, in, in a bunch of really important ways, and a bunch of subtle ways as well. And we think that they all end up being important in that for our health and well-being. But the biggest way, and, and the, the one thing that stands out in all of this, is the very definition of civilization. So going back to that idea of taming, what tamed us? Why, why are we tamed? And we think of that in terms of civilization. What really happened where there was agriculture, that about, oh, 6,000 years ago, maybe 8,000 years ago, humans started domesticating grain and eating grain in, in, in very large quantities. And we think of civilization as being libraries and writing and government and armies and all those things. But it's really agriculture. That's what's the big difference. And 
before that happened, we didn't eat grain. We didn't eat dense packages of carbohydrates. And those things make up something like 80% of our, our nutrition today. And so that, that's the most radical change that ever occurred to humans, uh, even more radical than the Industrial Revolution. And we still have not overcome the effects of that. So that's the big deal in all of this. But there are other ways as well. I mean, the obvious ways you might think of is we don't get outdoors as much as we used to. We don't have um, that cycle of sunlight. We don't uh, get in the woods. We don't get lost. We're not threatened by predators. And all those things turn out irrelevant as well. Yes, and I, I like what you're saying about the um, the grain because you also have in your book you have a uh, the foreword by um, the author of Grain Brain, David Perlmutter, uh, sure. medical doctor. And you, this is a big theme in the book. And of course, you've written um, a, a book against the grain itself. And uh, speak more on that in terms of uh, how grains have affected our overall well-being and health. Yeah, that is the big issue in modern health. I mean, everything we worry about, um, I think we can trace back to that. And and it's not just a modern problem. This is, there's this whole inquiry called diseases of civilization, and it began about, oh, 150 years ago or so, I don't know, almost 200 years ago now, that people started thinking about what happened when people started eating a Western diet to find his grain. And... It turns out people got sick, and we know that's true. We know that's true from the very, very beginning. So that issue is now coming to a fore just because we eat so much more of it now. In the last generation, we've really ramped this up something fierce, and especially with processed foods that are loaded with sugar. And, and uh, so, well, now I'm talking about sugar as opposed to grain. Well, not really, because the starches that we eat, and, and grain is a starchy food, as we all know, or potatoes is a starchy food. The starches break down almost immediately sugars in our body, and it's that sugar that our bodies can't deal with. And so we ended up with an insulin response. We ended up with inflammation, and those are that kind of triggers these cascading diseases, beginning with our obesity epidemic we have in this nation right now, beginning with things like type 2 diabetes in children, which was unheard of a generation ago, but extending on to things like Alzheimer's disease and dementia and problems that occur later in life. Now, that's, I, I want to, now, this is what some listeners are going to say, hey, wait a minute, this is a new concept to them. And they're probably, some of them are thinking, wait a minute, what about the food pyramid? We're supposed to eat a lot of grain, and we've been told not to eat too much fat, and, and that sometimes we eat too much protein. And we've also been told that obesity is caused by taking in more calories than we actually burn. Now, what's your response to that? Is that, is that true? Is that the whole truth? Have yeah, we... those, you're right. We have been told all of those things, and all of those things are wrong. And what's encouraging is that there's beginning to build a consensus around that idea, that people are understanding that we really took a wrong turn in nutrition, beginning with a guy named Ansel Keys, um, who, who really started this kind of fat phobia that, that, that's with us to this day. And that began in about the 1950s. And that's built on a, on a few limited studies and, and something that was really pretty intuitive. People say, well, we're fat because we eat too much fat, so that must be true. 
or people have high cholesterol and they also have heart attacks, so that must be true. That must be the cause of all these problems. Well, it turns out it's not. It's really not true, and the science is building on that. And not only that, we can explain the pathways a lot better now. We can understand, first of all, why people made that mistake, but also we're, we're coming to understand um, that, no, that a calorie is not a calorie, and we really need to focus on carbohydrates here, and fat's not the problem. And that's interesting you say that because I think of another group who's done tremendous research about fats, and that's the Weston Price Foundation. They're really they're they're all about uh, indigenous diets, and um, that started with the the um, dentist in the 30s who went and looked at um, uh, indigenous cultures, and that they had no dental caries or no problems with their mouth, and they had this wonderful health. And, you know, the mouth being an indicator and the, the quality of, you know, the health of your mouth and your teeth and your gums in terms of disease states. And they're big on eating fat and eating all the food groups, but they, they do include grains. So I, I want to talk a little bit more about this because this is you've, you've written about this and, and looked at the research. I want you to talk specifically about something that I discovered about you as I read your book, and that's the ketogenic diet. And I, I would love it if you would tell listeners, what is that? And, sure. um, and, and then talk about your experience with it. Sure. That's, that's kind of an interesting story and one I didn't expect. And, 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 and it's interesting in the, the, the way you phrase it here is that, 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 that you know, we've all known about low carbohydrates for a long time, and I certainly have. I've written about them. And I did not know about the ketogenic diet. And it, it came to me rather late in the process, and it came to me, um, um, as I was trailing, uh, training, I'm sorry, training for marathon races in the mountains. I run trails in the mountains. And I was taking, and it was new to me running those very long distances, so I took the conventional wisdom. And the conventional wisdom is you have to fuel your body with sugars to run those distances. And, you know, if you've been to a running race or a marathon, you can see guys sucking on these um, aluminum foil pouches of sugar water, essentially what it is. It has all sorts of fancy name, but it's sugar water at the end. And I was having terrible problems when I was doing that. I was crashing into walls, the runner's wall, and, and just having all sorts of head problems and so forth. And so as I thought about this, I said, wait, a this really contradicts everything I know about evolution because we know that hunter-gatherers went very long distances. They ran typically seven, eight miles a day, and they didn't have sugar gels. They didn't need out of these aluminum foil pouches. They didn't have sugar at all. So something's wrong with the conventional wisdom. So I did some more research, and that's when I discovered ketogenic diet. And what a ketogenic diet is, is, is take, it's, it's, it's actually an ultra-low carbohydrate diet. It really fits in with all the other low-carb diets that we've heard about over the years, like paleo and the Atkins and so forth. But it's lower still. It's about 50 grams of carbohydrates a day, which is the equivalent of you get out of maybe eating an apple. That's it. That's you know, low. That's very low, yeah. And and what happens when you do that is that, um, and, and here's where the name comes from, that your, your brain is the only organ in your body that must have sugar, glucose. And so those problems that runners experience, are, it, it, the problem is really related to their brain running out of sugar. When you go ketogenic, you convert your body over so your, your brain begins running on ketone bodies, hence the name ketogenic. And those are 
those are essentially little fat packages that your liver makes to supply your brain. And the conversion process is kind of interesting. You get a little spacey and feel like you might have the flu or something like that for a couple of days when your brain does that conversion. But after that, you don't need sugar anymore. And you don't feel that. And everybody talks about uh, low blood sugar in the afternoon. You know, I'm feeling a little down or a little spacey. I, I must have low blood, blood sugar. I better go eat a muffin or something like that. Right. That goes away. And you don't have those sugar cycles at all. In fact, you don't get hungry. Because so, you're, instance, I'm sorry, I yeah. interrupt you, but, but it's because you're eating so much uh, fat? And it's because you're, you have so much fat in your body, you don't need to eat fat. <laughs> and, and so if you go without food, your body gets along just fine, thank you. So I, I, shortly after I went ketogenic, I ran a 20-mile mountain race with 9,000 feet of elevation gain in it. It takes about eight hours to run that race. Yeah. And I ran it without anything at all, no food, zero. Um, typically, when I travel now, I'll just not eat the day I travel. And I don't get hungry. And that's the real benefit of ketogenic. But if you think about it, that's the way hunter-gatherers had to be because there were days they had food and days they didn't. And that was fine with them. And, and so it's, it's really quite liberating. It's kind of fun. That's interesting. There still are tribes today, right? The Maasai warriors in Africa. Sure. They they yeah. still are the you know traditional hunter gatherers, and they're um, they're they're very you know tall, lean, and run for hours and hours, and yeah. so they they live this lifestyle. So so is is this? Um, and I I understand because the um, the body. I always thought, as I learned in um, in studying exercise science, the body prefers glucose as the fuel and then but there's also the fatty acid um is another form of fuel so you're saying you're kind of um changing over the body to go into burning the fat instead of the glucose and that that is um that that's the goal of the ketogenic diet that's yeah that's more or less it that's exactly it and the, the whole assumption the body prefers is based on our present diet which are, are weird. In terms of human evolution, and for 50,000 years, we didn't have that diet, so our bodies did not prefer those things. So it's not really a preference at all. It's we've trained our bodies to be that way. That is the tame body. And so if we convert back to ketogenic, it's not the tame body. It's the and wild like body. It. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's really fascinating, and that's the history. And, and I like it to use the example of Maasai people there because I've, I've been among the Maasai people in Africa before. Mm-hmm. And, and, if, and, and they're not hunter-gatherers, they're herders, but close enough. Okay. And they, do, they live that way. And if they will typically take off in the morning and go 20 miles. No big deal. But it, the, the first thing you're struck by when you see Maasai people moving out across that, 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 that um, it's kind of a desert where they live, Mm-hmm. When you see them is how beautiful they are. They're incredibly graceful and thin, live. They move beautifully. And you think about that and you say, wait a minute, where do these guys get these bodies? Did they go to a trainer? Did they count calories? What yeah. special diet did they follow? And that's what really started me thinking about this is they didn't do any of those things. They just do what comes naturally to humans living in the wild. And they got beautiful as a result. Amazing.
amazing. I, for those who have just joined us now, I want to welcome you to Healthy Options. I'm the host, Cynthia Swan, and today I am talking with my guest, the award-winning journalist and co-author of Go Wild, Richard Manning. And you're listening on, to WERU Radio, 89.9 FM, 99.9 FM, and streaming, WERU.org. Um, Richard, I want to ask you specifically now you okay because you were running you were doing the old carbohydrate loading right am I right in that the glucose pretty much with the glucose all right so when you changed over I want to ask you personally when you changed over to this ketogenic diet what was that like for you I mean was it was it difficult did you you said you flew like symptoms did you have that was it I've read a variety of things where some people have terrible constipation some people have terrible headaches I mean is this a form of eating that that everyone in America can can get back into or should get back into to go truly wild yeah yeah, no, it was it was not hard at all. The and I was a little spacey for a few days, and then my brain changed over. But after that, the benefits far outweighed any, any cost that that were associated with it. And I had I had a lot of fun with it. I really did, and I enjoyed the process. Um, so some of the things that happened after I converted is one is I completely lost my taste for sugar at all. I mean, I just don't like it. And if if I you know if I'm a sociable, I've done this actually, and say, well, I have a piece of birthday cake. Well, okay, I'll have a piece of birthday cake. I don't want to be a nasty about this. Mm-hmm. And I don't like it. I, it. It doesn't taste good to me. So those things, those cravings go away for things like sugar. Um, but the most noticeable thing that happened to me, and this is quite interesting. I've been running pretty long distances for about a year by that point. And I thought I was in pretty good shape, and I thought I was at my ideal weight. In fact, my doctor told me that. Um, and I plateaued at a, at a nice weight for me, about 180, 175, 185 pounds, and there someplace. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, as it went ketogenic, I started losing weight immediately. And it was steady. It was about a pound a week until I lost another 20 pounds. Wow. And they and I wasn't trying to lose weight. I wasn't even thinking about it. And I hit that. I hit 165 pounds, which is you know, what I weighed early in high school, and felt really good. And in the year, two years since then, I have not varied much more than a pound anyway, in any direction, no matter what I do. If I stop running for a month, um, if I eat more food, none of those things seem to affect my weight at all. And um, it is just completely stable. And and because of the fat intake, you're not hungry, right? Yeah, I you know I'm never hungry, and I never restrict food, and I never count calories. I have no idea what I eat. I just eat when I'm hungry. I eat as much as I want to eat. Um, I snack all the time. I eat uh, bacon, eggs, cheese, nuts, things like that with a lot of fat content. So a lot of the fat, but you're also doing what would be called intermittent fasting, if I'm following you right, because you're saying some days when you travel or whatever, you're just not eating at all. You're not hungry, and it's not yeah. like you're doing it intentionally, but you are doing like what our ancestors did, where in their case, they might fast because they have to, yeah. um, but but you're I- doing it just because you don't need to eat? Yeah, I don't need to eat, um, but I'm not real regular about fasting. There are people who are, 
there are people who do this diet and say, no, you know, one day every two weeks you should eat food all at all. And I think that's a really good idea. I just haven't tried it yet. I will. But uh, no, I tend to eat intermittently, and that's fine. So oddly enough, you just caught me this morning after three days in the wilderness. I was backpacking for three days. Mm -hmm. And when I go backpacking, I'll carry some nuts and a little bit of jerky, and that's about it. And so there's there's no elaborate cooking or anything like that. And and I'm fine with that. That's just that's just that happens to be the way I eat. Do you drink a lot of water? Do you hydrate yourself no. or no, no, I don't think about water at all. And in fact there's some real good research on that. And a guy has written a guy named Tim Noakes wrote a book called um, Oh, the title will come to me in a second. But at any rate, it looks at the research about hydration. Yeah. And, you know, people go to races now. Oh, you got to drink all this water. Right. That actually, that advice has done more harm than good. And that it's, it's actually killed people. That, and, and the evidence is abundantly clear on that. And dehydration is not an issue. We have this marvelous device in us called getting thirsty. And if you, in fact, I, 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 I don't use the term hydration any longer. Mm -hmm. I just say drink water. <laughs> okay. But, but we've, some... medical, we've medicalized common experiences. That's why I object to the term hydration. Okay. I said, no, we drink water, and you get thirsty. So I drink water when I get thirsty. Okay. But this whole, uh, we've also been told, you know, that you should drink half your body weight in water daily to make sure that you're well hydrated. That's another myth? That's crazy. Yeah, it is. It's, 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 you have a perfect, I want to go back to a basic here in wildlife, which is, and this is, there's a wonderful term, a little bit scientific, but it's called homeostasis. Mm -hmm. What that is, it says your body has the ability to regulate and correct any problems if you learn how to listen to it. And, and water is a really good example of that. And if you get thirsty, you probably need some more water. But you also have these wonderful regulatory mechanisms in your body. And there's a, a chemical, a very specific chemical called vasopressin, which regulates your water loss. And so um, you'll stop urinating, for instance, um, and losing water through that, that result if you need that water. And so go back to the hunter-gatherers. I mean, typically, they would go out in desert conditions for an entire day of travel for 10 miles, and they carried an ostrich egg full of water. That would be the water for the day. And they'd be fine with that. And Or cut to the modern times. Now, Tim Noakes, the guy who wrote the book on this, did research on marathon runners. Mm -hmm. And he found out that all he did was did um, collect statistics on hydration and marathon runners. The ones who, there were dehydrated runners in the races. They were the guys who won. They won the races. The dehydrated were, runners. Yeah, because they tended to be a little lighter. You lose, you lose a couple pounds of weight there, and you're a little bit lighter, and you have a competitive edge. And then when you finish the race, you drink some water, and you're fine. So, Richard, give us some um, where, where listeners can get more information on this ketogenic diet, this ketogenic way of eating. Your book, Against the Grain, is one. I know that, um, that uh, Dr. David Perlmutter is the author of Grain Brain. His book is out there. I've seen some of his YouTube videos as well. Um, you've got a Facebook page for Go Wild. Um, what else is available for people? Uh, there, there's some good websites on it now, so just simply de uh, Google, do a Google search on ketogenic diet. And you'll see things like recipes, stuff like that, and how, how to go to ketogenic. 
the guy I use is a guy named Peter Defty, D-E-F-T-Y, okay. and he, he's done a lot of writing about and research on it and uh, talks about it. So if you can get more specifics on ketogenic. But it's not real hard, so you don't need a lot of information on it. Just basic understanding the nutrition and what you shouldn't be eating, and you're pretty much there. It's, it's not something difficult or um, requires a lot of elaborate preparation or recipes or things like that. And in fact, I tend to, to, to shy away from things like that. I, I like to keep things simple. And so the information is really basic. It fits on a page. You can learn it very quickly and go from there. Okay. So for you, uh, this way of eating, you, you, as, I'm, as I'm listening to you, you're saying you keep it pretty simple. It's all whole foods. You don't eat anything yeah. out of a box. And does it get yeah. rid of all one's food addictions? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And But the, the, the first part of what you said is just really important, that, that whole foods thing. Mm-hmm. So most of what comes to us that's bad comes to us in processed foods. Right. If it's in a box and got a label on it, you got a problem. And and so I tend to eat really simple foods. The flip side of that is that those that as you get rid of the sugar and processed foods in your life, those simple foods start to taste really good. And especially if you're sourcing them properly, you take care to get fresh vegetables because there's more nutrition in them, and that's what you're after. Once you get that, you think, boy, that stuff is really good. I really don't want to gild the lily here by preparing this elaborately and putting sauces on it or seasonings or things like that because the elemental stuff is so good. Yeah. So that that's an important part of it. And I think that that's, that that's really your body's feedback loops waking up. That's the sign that, that you're being pulled in the direction you need to be pulled in. And that's really what you're after at all of this. You want to wake up those feedback loops and your body's sens- sensitivities to its surroundings to pull you in the right direction, and that happens first at food. Okay. So I want to get real personal here, Richard. Uh, let's take oh, a day. Let's take a day and tell me, like, exactly from sunrise to, you know, sundown what you might eat and how you might prepare it, if at all. Sure. Um, and, and oddly enough, I'm in something of a rut, but, and, but I don't mind that. So okay. it's, it's pretty much the same uh, through the first half of the day. Uh, when I wake up in the morning, uh, I love coffee, so I have a cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. And I suppose that, 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 that someday that's going to cost me, but I can't find any research at all that says coffee's a bad thing. So I'm going to keep that yeah, if now, you don't mind. Now, now they're saying it's a great antioxidant drink, according yeah. to the Life Extensions Foundation's yeah. research. Yeah, and there's all sorts of better things that we like. Mm-hmm. And, and that's unique among species, and I think that that's an important message. Yeah, and it's a but, fermented food. Yeah, to get to the food. Um, I, and for breakfast, that's when I have my fruits today. Um, so and, and when you're ketogenic, you're going to have about one serving of fruit a day. I love fruit. I love fresh fruit. So I tend to take what is fresh in season now. Uh, so this time of year, it's strawberries. Uh, if I can get some blueberries, I'll get those. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have that with, and I'm, oh, this is a wonderful thing, and this is brand new, um, that 10 years ago you couldn't do this, but now you can. I can source in my dinky little town in Montana through my grocery store grass-fed yogurt. And so, um, and I'm a great believer in grass-fed dairy and beef. 
Yeah. And so I get a hold of grass-fed yogurt with nothing else in it except yogurt. And, and so, you know, the stuff you buy at the store now, it says it's yogurt. It's not. Um, you'd want to find something as simply yogurt. Yeah, we're and lucky I, in Maine because we have a lot of the MOFCA, Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners yeah, Association. I mean, yeah. we're very lucky. We have raw food, raw, I mean, raw raw milk, raw all this raw dairy available to us. Good for you. Yeah. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. And, and you're into the microbiome now and feeding those bacteria, mm-hmm. and that's really important. So, right. so there, that, that, I, that's what I have for breakfast. And I throw some almond butter in there. Because for a fat source, so I had so I have good omega three fasting yogurt plus the almond butter and a little bit of fruit, and there I am. I'm set for my carbs for the day. Um, okay. For lunch, um, almost every day I have an omelet, a cheese omelet with bacon, and uh, I don't need to have that, but I like it a lot, and uh, <laughs> really I look forward to it. And uh, that's after my run. I run in the mountains uh, almost every day, and. Uh, um, so I come back, make an omelet, and then through the afternoon, I'll tend to eat quite a few nuts. Um, I have nuts on hand all the time and eat those and maybe a piece of cheese. Um, if I'm hungry, if I feel like eating, sometimes you just feel like eating something. That's what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, for dinner, my, my wife and I make a point to have dinner every night at home. Uh, and, and, and it's just a nice ceremony to end the day. Mm-hmm. And we do that um, this time of year. Um, I have a garden growing, so I will be out in my garden picking what's fresh that day. Um, right now it's salad greens. We're a little behind you in Maine. Yep. Um, in Montana, it's the snow. I can still see snow from my house Oh, today, my goodness. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we have fresh greens. Um, I'm a hunter, so often my dinner will be elk. Um, we have, I have quite a bit of elk um, or venison. Mm-hmm. And for a meat source, and then fresh greens, and that's pretty much it for the day. That's 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 great. That's great. So you you yeah. just have, and then do you what, what other uh, what other liquids might you consume besides your coffee and occasional water? Is that it now? No fruit juice, water. no green juice. Yeah. You don't you don't no. juice anything like things. that. None of those things. No, and and especially fruit juice is a really bad idea. Because of the sugar, right? Because of the sugar, and especially any sugar dissolved in water, bypasses your digestive system, goes straight to your bloodstream. So fruit juice is a really bad idea. Yeah. If you have just joined us, you're listening to Healthy Options, and I'm your host, Cynthia Swan. Today, we're going wild with my guest, co-author of Go Wild by Dr. John Rady and Richard Manning, my guest. And we're talking about freeing your body and mind from the afflictions of civilization. I'm going to speak with Richard a little longer, and then I'm going to open the line to calls. Um, But I have a few other questions that I really want to address before we open the phone lines. Richard, I wanted to ask you, in the book, you talk about um, how depression involves more than the brain. And I want you to speak a little bit about the link between sleep deprivation and depression and how you talk about in the book that sleep can actually be a cure for depression. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And all the other areas. We've been talking a lot about food, but in fact, in the, and, and that's, that's really appropriate because food is the foundation of all of this. Mm-hmm. But we look at a bunch of other areas. Um, so we think about food, we think about movement, we think about uh, sleep, mm-hmm. meditation, uh, or mindfulness. And I, mindfulness is really the more appropriate term here. 
and relationships and a bunch of other things like that as they go together. And oddly enough, we found that those, you know, it's not I if you think about it, but everything related to everything else in ways that were shocking to us, surprising. As we did the research in the book, we thought we might be on something here. But the connections were really profound. And their connections always went back to the brain in some way. We could trace them, and they, more often than not, did through, through common, did so through common chemical pathways. So, for instance, we would be talking about the brain or uh, nutrition influencing a certain chemical in the brain, and we would find out that sleep influenced exactly the same chemical. Mm. And and so all of these things go together and they're connected. And it turns and I used the word homeostasis earlier on. And scientists who are looking at this are starting to use the term allostasis, which means not only that your body have these mechanisms for compensating for a loss, um, sleep or hunger or those kinds of things, but they're all they're all tied together. So if your, um, if you don't get enough sleep, for instance, that affects your digestive system. Or if you don't get outside often enough, that affects your immune system. And that's literally true. The, 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 the evidence is there. That comes back to depression in an interesting way in that you know, we, we talked in depression for a long time now about things like serotonin, so SSRIs, the mm-hmm. medication we take, serotonin. Well, it, almost all of these activities influence those neurotransmitters like dopamine, like serotonin, in really profound ways. And not only that, the evidence is starting to show us, it's showing that exercise is and, and we cite studies in the book. There are new studies coming out since saying exercise is every bit as good a remedy for depression as the medication, probably better. Right, and, but, but I'm going to play devil's advocate. I'm thinking if somebody who's super depressed, it's going to be hard for them to get up and move. Would would there be would food be a, a would nutrition be then a pathway to get them? I mean, because it, it, from your book, it's like everything, there, there's this kind, you, you synthesize it. It's like all these different um, areas, you have to weave them all together to actually yes. get that optimal health. Yes, yes. And, and, and you don't not only have to, it, it works better. It works a whole lot better if you do and it becomes easier. And that gives us options because some people like one thing more than another. Some people are more prone to changing their diet while mm-hmm. others are more prone to changing their exercise. So fine, start with exercise if you like exercise or start with food. But let's go back to sleep for a second because the research is abundantly clear on that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in fact, in the, in the book, we're really hesitant to give really specific prescriptions because we think individuals vary so much and mm-hmm. pathways vary so much. But on sleep, we can. And we can say that you should sleep on average eight and a half hours every single day. And uh, I say on average, so I shouldn't say every single day because if, if you can, in fact, sleep five hours one day and 10 hours the next year and so forth and get the average up there at eight and a half. Mm-hmm. And the research says that does not vary for anybody. So it, it's something that's absolutely universal and we're probably all violating it in some way or another. Yeah. If, 
sorry. If you don't do that, we can measure the results in your brain in those very neurotransmitters we're talking about, dopamine, serotonin, and so forth. So that's how sleep is linked to depression, and it, it, it's linked to it in almost exactly the same way as, as what we call stress. We, we talk a lot about stress in the book. Yes. There's uh, misunderstandings about that. Mm-hmm. But sleep looks like stress in the or I'm sorry, lack of sleep looks like stress in the end. Mm-hmm. And we, one of the best interviews we had in the book, we talked to a lot of scientists as we go through the book, there's a guy named Robert Stiffold who works in Boston, and he's probably the world's leading researcher on sleep. He's one of these great scientists who knows so much about it that he doesn't have to use the kind of scientific weasel words to Mm -hmm. talk about what he's talking about. Yeah, yeah. And we asked him about that, and he says, look, if you don't get enough sleep, you're going to be sick, fat, or stupid. And and he's, he's that blunt about it, and then proceeded to to, to give us all the evidence showing exactly that. Now, there's so many people, though, I can think of that are on, like, uh, have sleep, diagnosed with sleep apnea. They're on machines for sleep. I mean, what, what starting one, working in one of these areas of working with changing their food, changing yeah. their exercise habits, this will all help them to sleep better? Absolutely. Yeah, so these things tend to come together. They work together. And so if you're having a problem sleeping, you're one of those people that that, that, that really is, is struggling with that. And I know there are a lot of people like that, that there are things you can do directly. And so the, the first thing we will talk about is to think about your habits in the evening. Um, and you are not evolved to have sunlight until midnight, right? No one really is, mm-hmm. not every day. Well, we have the equivalent of sunlight in those blue screens that are in front of us. That There's blue light in there that looks just like sunlight. And uh, by that, I mean probably an LCD television or an LCD um, computer screen. Mm-hmm. So if you're up until playing, answering your email or watching TV until midnight, you're blasting your brain with sunlight, essentially. So you look at those things first and you say, what am I doing? What's in my life and, and things like unnatural light that's upsetting my body's rhythms and not allowing your sleep. And, and that's kind of the direct approach. The indirect is to think about nutrition, exercise, and relationships, and those other issues in your lives, those, that, that chronic psychological disturbance that's caused me to lose sleep. I think that's and, an excellent point that you make about the LC, you know, people on um, you know, watching television or on computers or utilizing technology in the evening. And yes. I hadn't thought about that. Um, I, I didn't know that fact until you brought that up in the book. And I thought, I thought that was a very interesting um, research in that realm. Because if people turn off the television or get off the computer a couple hours before nightfall, they're not blasting themselves with this. But I did have a question. If you're reading at a, at a lamp, is that the same idea? If I'm, if I'm sitting there reading a book and I've got a... Uh, you know, a light bulb in? Is that the same idea of blasting myself? Or is it it's oh, different? less so. Okay. Less so, depending on the color of the light. Okay. But most lamps now, most lamps now are incandescent, or, or if, you're, if you're going modern LCD, but it doesn't have as much blue light in it, so it's not nearly as much of a problem. But any artificial light is a problem in some way or another. Okay. And so the, the rhythms we have all, this is, there's an interesting bit of research that talks about bifurcated sleep or two sleeps. 
Mm-hmm. And it goes back to the time before we had natural light, or um, I'm sorry, unnatural light, artificial light. Right. And our habits, which you, you think about it, in human history is really recent. I mean, we're talking about 120 years or so of, of our artificial light before that. Well, it's many, and unless we had, you know, two candles, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But when people are removed from artificial light, they have a habit of adopting a pattern where they go to sleep, say, at 7 o'clock in the evening. They will sleep for about two or three hours and then wake up, have a really productive, interesting period, and then go back to sleep for a couple hours later after that. And that's been recorded historically. It's been recorded in other cultures. And it's also true of people who go through experiments now depriving of sleep. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's like our bodies are made to sleep that way. And once we take the light problem away, we'll we'll, we'll adopt that pattern naturally. Yes. I thought that was very... Now, you you alluded to stress. So I want to go there because you spend a lot of time in the book talking about mindfulness and how it actually relates to health. And, And in the book, you actually say meditation mirrors the state of mind among hunter-gatherers. Can you yeah. explain what that means for listeners? Yeah, it's kind of, yeah, we think about meditation and people, especially people who don't do it or who have read a little bit about it, as in relaxation, as being blissed out, as being in a state where uh, uh, you're on stress, you're not stressed at all. And it turns out that's not true. It's And the people who've done the research on it and done the brain work on it and chemistry on the biochemistry on it. No, it's, it's different from that. And the way I think of it is this. that uh, Another way we think of it is focus. That we're able to focus with pinpoint accuracy on something. And that's exactly wrong. It's the opposite of focus. Uh, there, There's some really interesting brain work being done on the left brain and right brain. That kind of Remember we talked about that maybe 20 years ago. People would talk about he's the left brain, right. he's the right brain. He's more intuitive, she's more analytical, yeah. yes. Well, there's something to that, actually. And what there is to it is is that our left brain, and that's where almost all of us live in modern society, that's the driving brain, um, is very tightly focused. We see things in a very narrow level. And our right brain is able to see the entire picture and take in everything that's out there. And it's that right brain that we're losing. It's that ability to take in the broad picture. And that's what hunter-gatherers had. They had to have it. And so the left brain is always planning and seeing what it wants to see. It sees things very narrowly. If you're a hunter-gatherer, you, you couldn't see what you wanted to see. You had to see everything was there. You had to be prepared for the unexpected. And it's, that's not relaxation. That's not being blissed out. That is being open to different things. And that is a really interesting distinction, I think, and an important one, an important one in all of our lives. Um, but this, this stress distinction, and, and it's, um, so hunter-gatherers, for instance, were never on stress, nor were they always stressed out. They were kind of on the border between the two, mm-hmm. between, between stress and relaxation. They had to be because they were dealing with very real threats. And you have to be calm and, and even healed when a threat comes along. So if you're stressed out and, and you panic, uh, then you'll, you'll be dead. 
if you're dealing with a lion, and I've done this, I've dealt with grizzly bears before on the trail, mm-hmm. you, you, the last thing you want to do is panic and show fear. And that's the world they lived in. And so the, the chronic stress world we're in is not possible for them. They would die. Right. It's interesting. You know, you, you mentioned Sapolsky's work in your book. Um, yeah. He wrote Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, neuroscientist. And he talked about how zebra, you know, after a, an animal, you know, has been, um, you know, there's an attack with the predator to uh, that they'll, the zebras, the ones who survive the attack, who don't get killed by the predator, then they start to shake. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and and Robert Sapolsky's work is really important, and 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 oddly enough, um, my co-author in the book, John Rady, um, had very similar um, experience from another direction, in that very early on he dealt with exceedingly violent people, and he, he was a psychiatrist then, mm-hmm. he still is a psychiatrist, I should say, but he was a psychiatrist dealing with violent people and people who are having all sorts of problems controlling um, themselves. And he found out that that shaking effect in the, in the muscles, mm-hmm. by getting people to exercise and relax their muscles, calm their brains, and a concept he called noise. And so that relationship between the shaking or the movement in the body and the noise in the brain um, was really well established. And so... That's how those things are connected. Yeah. You are listening to Healthy Options. I'm your host, Cynthia Swan, and today we're going wild with my guest, co-author of the book, Go Wild, Free Your Body and Mind from the Afflictions of Civilization, um, written in conjunction with uh, Dr. John Rady in um, Cambridge, Massachusetts, in L.A. And I'm speaking with Richard Manning. I, I We only have about 15 minutes left, but I do want to open the phone lines because there may be some listeners out there who have a question for Richard or a comment. Maybe you can tell us how you go wild. Um, and our call-in number is one 866 625 W-E-R-U. I'll say that again, 866-625-9378. And, of course, you're listening to WERU Radio at 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 FM Bangor, and we're streaming, WERU.org. And I'm going to continue the conversation here with Richard. Now, Richard, we talked about Sapolsky, but you also in the book talk about how domestic pets can actually help us. Um, yeah. Can you speak a little bit more? Can you elaborate? Yeah. Now, now you're hearing from a dog guy. I, I, I live with dogs, and I take a lot of information from dogs. And so there are a number of ways. The specific way we talked about in the book, and the, the example that I think is pretty, pretty interesting, has to do with sleep. And this comes from anthropologists of sleep, if you can believe there's such a thing as an anthropologist of sleep. And, and they, they look at this, and, and, but, and, and it also has to do with, we were talking about predators, lions, things like that around. Well, humans evolved with predators constantly around them, you know, giant bears and lions and things that ate their children. Mm-hmm. And so at night you had to be a little bit watchful. And you couldn't really go to sleep completely. And so that talks about levels of sleep. If you go into a deep sleep, you're really paralyzed. You're helpless. And so, but you need that. You need to do that. And so when is it safe to do that? Well, one of the ways you could do that was have a dog around. If a dog was around, then the dog's 
essentially is serving as a sentry. And if that dog is peaceful and snoring away, as dogs will do, then that signals your brain, it's okay to go to that deep sleep. Well, those, those circuits are still in our brain, that those signals are still valid for us because we evolved with those. And so if there's a dog around and it's sleeping peacefully, you sleep peacefully. And that's a very ancient relationship that we can take advantage of today in a very easy way. Okay, Richard, I'm going to interrupt you. It looks like we have a caller, so I'm going to welcome this caller. If you'd like to give us your first name in the town you're calling from and then your question or comment. Good morning. This is Yo in Tremont. Good morning. This is a very interesting program. My question is how, how can these ideas be implemented by anything short of a complete revamping of society? Perhaps you can elaborate on how the diet dovetails with the local food and organic movement and how people can find ways to get more rest and deeper rest in, in what you've already described as a stressful world. Thank you for putting on this program, and thank you to everyone for supporting Community Radio. Thank you. So, Richard, why don't you respond to that? Yeah, it's a very good question, and of course, the the, the, the caller put it put forward the best example, which is the local food movement. Mm -hmm. I've been thinking about these issues for maybe twenty years, and when I talk about these issues twenty years ago, people would tell me I was crazy that you really can't do this in our modern society. But in fact, that local agriculture movement has grown so robustly in the last fifteen years that to prove those people wrong. I mean, it really is demand-driven that people want these things, and the more people ask for these things and want these things, the more they tend to happen. And so the, the, the local food movement is really there to a point now it can support these things, and it just gets better every day by the fact that we, we, we ask um, these things of it. But beyond that, the things like controlling um, um, sleep, for instance, in a stressful world, Sometimes you have to be willing to make radical changes. And I don't mean radical changes in society, although I'm not opposed to that at all. That needs to happen. Um, but in your own life, you have to be willing to say, wait a minute, if this job is really making me sick, then maybe I don't want this job. I have to find something else to do. And we really are talking about your long-term health here and your longevity and and the quality of life, especially late in life. And what's that worth? How, so you, you, might, you might have to make some very, very big changes in your life. You might have to move. You might have to not live with the person you're living with now. All those things may be true. Mm -hmm. But it's a big deal. It's a big deal to have a decent life. And so you might have to, to, to go ahead and make those changes. Right. Now, we have another caller, Richard. I'm going to um, welcome this caller. And if you would give us your first name and the town you're from and your question or comment for Richard. Hi, this is Lorraine from Lincolnville. Hi, Lorraine. Hi. Uh, I'm curious what you have to say about vegetarians or mostly vegetarians such as myself who grow and eat a lot of my beans and also supplement with some local seafood and plenty of the neighbor's eggs and cheese. Okay, I great. Know, for those of us who choose not to eat that way, do you have any suggestions? 
Richard? Yeah, okay. I heard the first part of the question, which is what I have to say about vegetarians, but there was some qualification in there. I think the caller was saying um, eat something besides. Could you repeat the last half, please? Yeah, I do have a local shellfish and local eggs and cheese. I just choose not to eat like chicken and deer and rabbits and cows. So I know you're a big meat eater. What would you say to those of us who don't eat that much meat, how we can have the proper diet? Yeah, that's what I was trying to get after, was the, that much or zero. And that's a big difference. Um, so back to the point, first of all, of vegetarianism. Um, so most of my work, or like all of it, is informed by evolutionary past. What's the precedent for this in evolutionary history? Long-term humans, 40,000, 50,000 years. In that record, there is zero evidence of vegetarianism. There are no societies we know of that are vegetarian. There's some really good reasons for that. Um, it's because humans, the way they evolved, really needed um, uh, meat because it was a dense source of food. Now, to the question of, well, okay, I don't want to eat as much meat or zero meat. Um, you have to do some adjustment, but if you, you don't have to eat a lot. That's one of the things we need to understand that people think by eating a low-carb diet, you're eating a lot of protein. You're really not. You're eating fats more than anything else. And in fact, anything more than three or four ounces um, at a meal is probably excess. So that 16-ounce steak, that's a bad idea in any effect. So if you're eating just a little, if you're getting eggs, eggs are great, and that's a very good way to supplement that. If you eat dairy, great, you're, 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 on, the, you're on the right track. That's a very good way to supplement. You probably don't need that much meat. Um, and so we can all cut back on meat. We can all eat less and find those other sources. And then find the sources for fats, and those exist in the vegetable world, although you got to be careful because then now we're getting the trans fats, which can cause problems. But olive oil, um, uh, some of the nut oils are very good, and the nuts are good sources of fats. So there are other ways to do it. You can be, um, uh, if not completely vegetarian, you can, you can do rather well at this. Um, by, by being a little careful. So you could be like a lacto-ovo vegetarian, in other words, dairy and eggs, yeah. and still yeah. do ketogenic. You don't have right. to eat red meat, correct? That, I just want to qualify that. Okay, that, good. That, that's correct, but you got to be careful, and you do need to eat animal protein. But you just don't have to get some meat. Okay. And I have a question, I'm picking back on her um, question. What about, like, beans? Where does beans? that fall in this? Yeah, like kidney beans, uh, uh, zuki beans, pinto beans, black beans. Where does that fit? Yeah, I don't eat them. And so, and they are fairly dense. They're fairly starchy, fairly dense in carbohydrates. I worry about soybeans especially yeah. um, because some of the problems that are resulting from those, but also from the environmental angle. I've written a lot about agriculture and the destructiveness of American industrial agriculture. And soybeans are such a key part of that. They're so integrated into what we're doing in terms of environmental destruction for agriculture in this country that they bother me a lot. Yeah, it's and a GMO so food, eat. isn't it? It's a genetically modified well, food? It's a monocrop. It's not just the GMO. It's the monocrop, and it goes on. And so almost the entire American Midwest is converted to corn, soybean agriculture, and it's an incredibly destructive system. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it rests in soybeans. And, and they're also the basis of processed food. 
Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but, you know, uh, and even it's all right to eat a little bit of grain. I mean, yeah, that, that uh, hunter-gatherers had some wild grasses and ate those, and they had wild beans and they ate those. It's when we get really excessive with those things that, that it's a real problem. Yeah, it sounds like it's the balance. If you're just joining us in these few moments remaining, you're listening to Healthy Options, and I'm your host, Cynthia Swan, and my guest today is the author of Go Wild, co-author of Go Wild, and that's Richard Manning. And Richard's an award-winning journalist and the author of several books, including Against the Grain and One Round River. Hey, uh, Richard, while I have you on, where can they find you? A website, your Facebook page? You want to give me Yeah. Um, I'm kind of a low-tech guy. I've got a website, and it, um, if they just do a Google Google search on my name, they'll find that. It's richardmanning.net. Okay. Uh, and that's easy enough, and that's got some of my other work and lists of the other books on there, but it's pretty minimal stuff. And and the best way to find out what I'm um, about, what I talk about, are just read the books. That's why I write books, because some of this takes book-length stuff, and and so that's, that's, that's why I write them. Good. I'm glad that you said that because I'm going to segue into what might end up being my final question due to time. And that is, I read in your book that you said, I don't believe in writing a book unless it changes. I asked myself, this, will this change my life? And yeah. so obviously writing Go Wild with um, your co-author, uh, uh, John Rady, medical doctor, changed your life. So I, I want to know, I want you to tell me, how, how did it change your life? In what ways? Sure. Yeah, we've we've talked about some of those ways, and obviously, I'm 50 pounds lighter than when I started. That change. That's a big change. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big change, and I um, don't drink alcohol anymore. That's a big change in mm-hmm. my life. I used to love to drink wine with friends and that kind of thing, and it just went away. It went and, away and, as a result of the diet, yeah. or okay, yeah. okay. Yeah, and and I think that's because metabolism of carbohydrates is very similar to metabolism of ag- uh, alcohol. Mm-hmm. And those things travel on the same pathways. And so um, it was very much like my taste for sugar. Well, that's consistent with hunter-gatherers. So that's there. Um, and it's changed my life in other ways, too. I'm, and, and, uh, and coming up against society and understanding our ability to deal with these things, um, I, it, we're going to have a problem dealing with these issues because it's so deeply embedded. It's been deeply embedded on almost every level, including writing books and publication. And so our society is really not ready to deal with these things in some ways. And so I'm backing off now and thinking about, well, what's the next level where we think about um, the, the reform of society that's necessary to allow us to think about these things? And that's kind of a new direction for me um, in some ways. And I'm not sure. I'm not putting that well because I don't understand it. So that's what I'm thinking. But it's about. something but you're it's something you're thinking about because I, I think it's interesting, like that. Um, what you were saying earlier too, like you know, kind of starts with the societal change. Also starts when it's driven by the grassroots and when it's driven yeah. by the individual. It's like our food. Our food is going to change as a result of all the things that um, the local people, you know, what we're wanting for our families and ourselves. And I'm hearing my theme music, so it looks like I'm we're, we're being. Um, 
It's time to say goodbye, so we have to leave it there. But I want to thank Joel Mann for engineering this show. And I'm Cynthia Swan for Healthy Options. And I really appreciated our conversation uh, about the book Go Wild, Free Your Body and Mind from the Afflictions of Civilization with Richard Manning. That's M-A-N-N-I-N-G. Richard, thanks so much for being on the show. Well, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. 